The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today our guest is Dr Colin Barn, who will be discussing his five favourite books. Welcome Colin. Thank you Tom, it's a pleasure to be here. Now the first book that you've chosen is one which I'm sure will be familiar to many people, uh, Goldfinger, the 1959 novel by Ian Fleming, which later went on to inspire what is for many people their favourite film in the James Bond series. Now Colin, Ian Fleming wrote about 14 full-length novels, Goldfinger being the seventh of them. Why was it that you decided to choose this particular book? Well, the book Goldfinger was published in 1959, and as you have said, the film was made five years later and was considered by many people to be the very best of the series. Cubby Broccoli once referred to it as the Pride of the Fleet. And it is interesting that Fleming's book isn't that different from the film adaptation. For example, we have Bond driving an Aston Martin. In the book, it is a DB3. In the film, it is a DB5, which is fitted with some gadgets. In the book, the Aston has a switch which can alter the pattern of the rear lights, a hidden gun compartment, and a tracking system for a radio homework. The film took things a lot further as the car had machine guns, an ejector seat, a bulletproof rear screen, revolving number plates and so on. But the seeds of the idea for a car fitted with various gadgets were sown in the 1959 novel. In the book, Goldfinger plans to use a nuclear warhead to blow open Fort Knox and then steal the gold. But in the film, he plans to merely irradiate the gold, thus increasing the value of his own assets. The book also features a plot point in which Jill Masterton is killed by being covered in gold paint, and also a scene in which Oddjob is sucked out an aircraft window. In the film, it is, of course, Goldfinger who suffers this fate. In fact, Both of these ideas are scientifically inaccurate. There's no such thing as skin suffocation. If there was, everyone who smears sun cream on their bodies would die of skin suffocation, and anyone who went scuba diving would suffer a similar fate. Many years ago, I read a very interesting book, The Science of James Bond by Lois H. Gresh and Robert Weinberg, which discusses these very plot points. And the authors concluded that Fleming got his idea for skin suffocation from the real-life case of Wizard of Oz actor Buddy Ebsen, whose entire body was covered with makeup for his role of the Tin Man 
back in 1938. Now Epson subsequently ended up in hospital, but this was due to an allergic reaction to the aluminium powder used in the makeup, not skin suffocation. Gresh and Weinberg also ridiculed the idea that a bullet hole in the window of a pressurised aircraft would result in people being sucked out. In the film, Goldfinger is sucked out the window of a Lockheed executive jet. In the book, Oddjob is sucked through the porthole of a Boeing Stratocruiser airliner after Bond pierces the window with a small knife. In fact, this is incorrect as a small hole in a pressurised aircraft cabin doesn't have dramatic consequences. But despite these scientific inaccuracies, Goldfinger is a very imaginative book, which really draws the reader in. Fleming's Bond novels are still very widely read today. What is it do you feel about Goldfinger particularly that holds up well? Well, I think the, the, the detail in the book is so fascinating. I mean, Fleming was really one of the first uh, novelists to incorporate a lot of detail in his writing, details of guns, details of the food that Bond ate, details of the cigarettes he liked to smoke, details of golf and so on. For example, the, the two chapters dealing with the golf match are incredibly detailed. In fact, there's probably too much detail. If you're not a golf player, you probably won't understand them. For the film, the golf match was retained, but was simplified considerably. And some of the detail is just wrong, though. In the book, Bond creates a radio homing device just by connecting a dry battery to a thermionic valve, what the Americans call a vacuum tube. Now, that would never work. The valve would have to be part of a tuned oscillator circuit to create a radio signal. But what is good, though, are the highly detailed descriptions of various gourmet meals which Bond enjoys, particularly a lunch of stone crabs with buttered toast washed down with champagne. When I was reading that, even recently, I was salivating. Well, the James Bond series has had a monumental impact on the spy thriller genre, but what is it specifically about Goldfinger that you feel has uh, had an impact on popular culture and the way that other writers have approached their work? Well, I would say the influence of Goldfinger comes largely through the film adaptation because everyone remembers the gadget-laden Aston Martin and the laser beam scene. In the book, Bond is threatened with a circular saw, not a laser. However, even the novel Goldfinger must be one of the first books to feature a plot to set off a nuclear bomb, one which has been used many times since, for example, in many episodes of the TV series 24. Goldfinger was also one of the first novels to feature a lot of technical detail. One fault of Alistair MacLean's books, for example, is that they don't have much technical detail, and what they do have is often wrong. Books like Where Eagles Dare and The Guns of Navarone don't hold up well against the novels of Tom Clancy, as they are very lacking in technical detail. The second book you've chosen is Frederick Versailles' famous 1971 novel, The Day of the Jackal. What is it about this particular book that you like so much? In my opinion, Day of the Jackal is one of the greatest thrillers ever written, as has inspired generations of writers ever since. 
It has a template that many writers have copied. An entirely fictional story built around a few factual events which are then extrapolated to the nth degree. To explain the plot of Day of the Jackal, in the late 1950s Algeria was still a French colony and French forces were fighting against Algerian rebels who wanted independence. Eventually, in 1962, the French president Charles de Gaulle agreed to their demands and France pulled out of Algeria. Unfortunately, a number of former French soldiers became very angry at this decision as they felt betrayed and they formed a terrorist organisation, the OAS, which was intent on killing de Gaulle. The book opens with a true factual event, an unsuccessful OAS machine gun attack on de Gaulle's motorcade. The rest of the novel, though, is fictional and deals with the attempts of the OAS to assassinate de Gaulle using a hired professional gunman who employs a custom-made high-powered sniper rifle which fires mercury-filled frangible bullets. Now what is so impressive about the book is the incredible amount of detail in it. Details of French life, French cuisine, French politics, the French police, and of course about the bespoke gun which the jackal uses. What is even more remarkable is the fact that the entire book was written in just 35 days. And remember, this was long before the days of word processors and computers. Frederick Forsyth originally intended to write just three thrillers and then retire, but the other two books being The Odessa File and The Dogs of War. But he has come out of retirement a number of times to write further books. In fact, at the age of 80, he has just completed his latest book, Fox, which he wrote in just three months. Now, The Day of the Jackal was, of course, the subject of a very popular film adaptation. What influence do you think that has had in popular culture? As you have just said, Tom, Day of the Jackal was made into a memorable film starring Edward Fox and directed by Fred Zinnemann, which came out in 1973 and it has influenced many other films and TV series. For example, there is an episode of the wonderful TV series The Professionals called Killer with a Long Arm, which used a number of ideas lifted from Day of the Jackal, such as a special sniper rifle hidden in the chassis of a car. And I recall seeing an episode of the TV series The Streets of San Francisco, which was obviously based on Day of the Jackal. Day of the Jackal was of course itself remade as The Jackal in the mid-90s with Bruce Willis in the title role. And being such a popular book, The Day of the Jackal has had major influence on other writers. What kind of influence do you feel the book has had on your own writing? Well, as you say, uh, this book has had a great influence on other writers because it established a new genre a fictional book based on a few factual events. Many other writers have copied this core idea. For example, the Jack Higgins book, The Eagle Has Landed, about a German plot to kidnap or assassinate Churchill, which was based on a conversation Higgins had with a Russian army officer some years after the war. And of course, 
Day of the Jackal has influenced my own writing, in particular my latest book, Operation Archer, which, although fictional, is based around a number of real historical events. And now we come to a book which I think it's probably fair to say is something of a joker in the pack, and that's the Monty Python Big Red Book. What's it about this particular book you like so much? Well, Monty Python's Flying Circus was a programme which has had a great influence in my life. As the late George Harrison once said, there are some things that make life worth living, and Monty Python is one of them. I was also a great fan of all the satirical comedy programmes which preceded it, and which had many of the same cast members, like The Frost Report, At Last the 1948 Show, and Do Not Adjust Your Set. I remember when I was at Greenock Academy in the early 70s, Monty Python was worshipped almost like a religion by my fellow pupils. One problem, though, was that in these days there were no video recorders, and the only way we could relive sketches was through Monty Python records and the books, the first of which was Monty Python's Big Red Book, which was published in late 1971. And by the way, even though it was called the Big Red Book, the cover was blue. Much of the material in the book was based on sketches in the first two seasons of the TV show. There was also some totally original material, and some of the photos were lifted from the Python's first film, and now for something completely different, which mainly consisted of their best sketches redone for the cinema. Now what I liked so much about the book was the way everything was presented. It wasn't just a lot of words. There were lots of photographs and illustrations. For example, there was a running gag about various TV newscasters being upset about not being asked to write the foreword, which was illustrated with real letters done in printed letterheads. They would be fake newspaper adverts, fake election leaflets, fake magazine covers, fake personal advice columns, and so on. Visually, the book was a tour de force of production design. It was a great inspiration to me then and now, and one of my life goals, which I have yet to achieve, by the way, is to write a funny book with lots of pictures and illustrations, rather like Monty Python's Big Red Book. It's difficult to calculate exactly how much influence that Monty Python has had on popular culture, so massive was its impact. What do you feel has been the influence of this specific book? Well, the book has inspired a number of similar tomes. The Monty Python team themselves produced a follow-up in 1973 called Monty Python's Paperbock, which was actually a hardback. And there was a great gag right at the start. The book had a paper sleeve, like most hardback books. And when you took off this paper sleeve, there was a colour cover showing lots of naked bodies and a heading which said, Tits and Bums, a weekly look at church architecture. The comedy team, The Goodies, produced something similar, as did Morecambe and Wise and Eric Idle. He was one of the Pythons, produced a Rutland weekend television book based on his BBC Two TV series from 1975 and 1976, 
which of course itself led to the Ruttles. There's also been similar comic books by the Not the Nine O'Clock News team and Spitting Image. And do you feel that Monty Python, and specifically the Big Red Book, has had an impact on your own writing? Monty Python has influenced my own writing, particularly in my earlier years. When I was in my sixth year at school, I produced an underground school magazine, which was probably influenced by Monty Python's Big Red Book. It also influenced a lot of the comic writing I did for Sergo, the Glasgow University Medical Journal, which I edited for a couple of years. Now the next book we move on to is Black Sunday, a famous thriller by Thomas Harris, first published in 1975. What is it particularly about this book that has come to influence you? Thomas Harris is of course best known for his series of books featuring Hannibal Lecter. But in 1975 he published his first novel called Black Sunday, in which Black September terrorists plan to explode a huge bomb directly over an American sports stadium, killing thousands of civilians and the American president. The perpetrator of this deed is a deranged Vietnam veteran called Michael Lander, who has been groomed by a female Palestinian terrorist. In many ways, the book was ahead of its time, as it had many similarities with the real-life 9-11 attacks. In other words, a suicide mission carried out from the air on American soil by fanatical terrorists. What I liked so much about this book was the incredible level of technical detail and also the way in which Thomas Harris really got inside the mind of a very sick individual, Michael Lander, and described him so well to the reader. And this is something Thomas Harris was to do again and again to great effect in the series of Hannibal Lecture books. And of course, Black Sunday would later be adapted into a film. Why do you feel it wasn't a particularly great success at the box office? Black Sunday was indeed turned into a film directed by John Frankenheimer and scripted by Ernest Lehman, which was released in 1977, and which starred Bruce Dern, Marth Keller and Robert Shaw. One reason for its lack of box office success was that it was competing with a very similar film, called Two Minute Warning, which starred Charlton Heston. Black Sunday also suffered from not having a major star. Bruce Dern and Robert Shaw were really character actors, not superstars, and Shaw was coming to the end of his life. His wife, Mary Ewer, had died of a drug overdose in 1975, and he himself suffered from very poor health as he was a heavy smoker and an alcoholic and was addicted to sleeping pills. He died of a heart attack a year after Black Sunday was released. I think if the film had had a major star in it, like Clint Eastwood or Burt Reynolds, then it would have fared better at the box office. All the same, I think Black Sunday is a fine film. It benefits from being made entirely on location and so has a very gritty feel about it, rather like Bullet or Dirty Harry. It also has a lot of tension and a great musical score by John Williams. Thomas Harris has enjoyed enormous success as an author. What particular influence do you feel that his work, and specifically Black Sunday, has had on your own writing? 
I recently completed my first novel, Operation Archer, and I was thinking about Black Sunday when I was writing it, particularly in a chapter near the beginning of my new book when I described the backstory of the main antagonist in the story, the sadistic, psychopathic SS man, Carol Muller. And finally, we move on to KG200, a novel by John Clive and J.D. Gilman, which was first published in 1977. Now, this book isn't particularly well known nowadays, but in its day it was a bestseller. Can you say a bit more about it? John Clive was a well-known British actor. If you've ever seen the original version of The Italian Job, then you will have seen John Clive. He appears in a scene early in the movie, when Michael Caine's character, Charlie Crocker, picks up his Aston Martin from a garage. John Clive plays the man who hands over the keys to Crocker. John Clive also appeared in many of the Carry On films. In the mid-70s, John Clive wrote his first novel, KG200. The book is also credited to J.D. Gilman, which was a pseudonym for two writers, namely Douglas Orgill and Jack Fishman, who were both very experienced technical and thriller writers. KG 200 with a Luftwaffe unit which specialised in the operation of captured Allied aircraft. The unit really existed and took part in a number of clandestine operations. In the novel, the unit is given the task of bombing the underground cabinet war rooms in London and killing Churchill using captured Boeing B-17 bombers and special incendiary bombs. The German plan is eventually thwarted by the RAF who use Spitzfires to shoot down the B-17s. And what is it about KG-200 that you've come to like so much? It's incredibly accurate. Largely because of the input of Douglas Orgill and Jack Fishman, all the historical and technical detail is mostly correct. I recently reread the book in preparation for this podcast and could only find three minor technical errors in the whole book. Like Day of the Jackal, it takes real historical events and then extrapolates them to produce a thrilling but very plausible story. And what influence do you feel this book has had on the way that you write books yourself? KG 200 was one of the influences behind my most recent book, the novel Operation Archer, which will be published in late 2018. In my book, I've taken an event, the possibility that the Germans developed saucer-shaped craft in World War II, and then extrapolated it to the nth degree. As in KG 200, I've included a great deal of historical and technical detail in my book. Another connection between KG-200 and Operation Archer is that one of the co-authors of KG-200, Jack Fishman, later wrote a book called And the Walls Came Tumbling Down about the RAF's air raid on Amiens prison in February 1944. That raid was carried out by mosquitoes led by Wing Commander Percy Pick Pickard and Pickard himself appears as a key character in Operation Archer. The Amiens raid, which was known as Operation Jericho, was also the main inspiration 
behind the 1968 David McCallum movie Mosquito Squadron, which was designed to cash in on the success of the film 633 Squadron. Well, Colin, it's fair to say there's a, a great deal of variety in your choice of books. Thank you very much for taking some time today to discuss them with us. Thank you very much, Tom. And thank you very much to you at home for listening. I hope that you'll join us again soon. If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.